Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show with Chris Webster on KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada, and online at knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. Welcome to the show. Hello, listeners and fans of archaeology. I'm your host for the next hour, Chris Webster. I'm a contract archaeologist, which you guys should all know what is by now, hopefully, unless I'm getting new listeners, which would be a fantastic thing. Um, I'm a contract archaeologist in a field we call cultural resources management. I also run the Archaeology Podcast Network. We have lots of good shows about archaeology, and you can find them all at www.archpodnet.com. In fact, next week, I'm going to be in talks with another archaeology podcast called The Dirt Podcast and see about bringing them onto the APN. So we're always adding new content and new things over there. Uh, In the meantime... Go check out the Dirt Podcast. Just search for that on your podcast player of choice. My co-host today for, I think, the third week in a row or something like that is Brian Woods. Let's turn Brian's microphone on. Yeah, so last week <laughs> I picked the wrong mic, and then you give me you give me grief about it, and then this week I picked the right mic, and you're like, mm, I'm not going to turn it on. Hello, That's everyone. Right. I am here for three weeks in a row now, I think. Maybe two. That's right. Either way, thank you very much. It's great to be here. That's right. All right. So... Maybe we won't have any more hiccups for the show, but I highly doubt that. So uh, while you're listening to this uh, and we're playing out the music here, remember that first and foremost, no matter what we're talking about today, this is a call-in show. So call in with your questions to 775-515-4141. That's 775-515-4141. You can also tweet your questions to at Archeowebby, A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y, or at ArcPodNet, A-R-C-H-P-O-D-N-E-T. Call in with your questions about archaeology, history, archaeology saw on TV, questions about finding things on your property, anything. Uh, we don't have all the answers, but I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. Okay, so one more time. 55... Five, wow, that's not the... What is this, a movie? 555? Mm-hmm, five, five, five? Mm-hmm, yeah. 775-515-4141. Mm-hmm. All right. How's it going, Brad? It's going well. And for the <laughs> audience, he really does want you to call in despite all the misdirection. <laughs> On the phone number. <laughs> <laughs> That's really all I want, to yes. be honest. If anybody's actually listening to this, all I want is for people to call in and we talk about archaeology. You know, hey, I, hear, I heard this or I read this or I found this. You know, let's have a conversation about it. That's what I want the show to be is more educational from that standpoint for gotcha. locals here in the Carson Valley area that are listening to this on the radio. And for anybody listening around the world, potentially on uh on the internet mm. so i just wanted to say for the last for your intro and you announced yourself as a contract archaeologist yes 
all I like, I figure that you have a satchel and in that satchel, there's a silenced weapon, right? I'm a con- like a contract killer. I think you put contract in front of anything. It's amazing. Just immediately more interesting, right? I'm yes. a contract human resources person, right? That sounds dangerous. That sounds real dangerous. Right? Yeah. So. But, but contract archaeologist is like double cool because just telling someone you're an archaeologist, unless you really know what that means. Right. Unless you've met one. Yeah. Unless you've met one right, <laughs> and talked about it at length, then you realize it's not that cool. But, you know, contra- you're right. It's like makes it super cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I hate shows that start off talking about the weather because that's such a generic, weird thing to do. Mm-hmm. But we're going to start off talking about the weather. Well, you could, you could ask the audience how everybody's doing tonight. <laughs> yeah, how's everybody doing tonight? Yeah, uh, yeah. So we're going to talk about the weather because it impacts uh, it impacts archaeology, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about that. And and it's, I'm bringing it up now because we've had somewhat crazy weather in the last week and a half, which is pretty typical for a high desert region. Sure, you know, in springtime you're going to have weather that's all over the place. I mean, we had. Like snow flurries down here in the valley, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Something like that? And then it was 90 yesterday? 90. Like that? Yeah, it was 90. Yeah. I actually did some flying with the Civil Air Patrol, and we were doing some touch and goes down here at uh, Minden. And I haven't done – I'm getting my recertification for my qualifications for flying so mm-hmm. I can fly with CAP. So I'm in the left seat. I'm flying the plane, and it's a more powerful plane than when I got my license and did most of my flying on. So I'm not used to the, the kind of power that it has. And then also we're doing crosswind landings, and my God, it was just – it was harrowing. <laughs> yeah, that would. I can't even ima- like. So, I've I've realized that my fear of flying really has nothing to do with flying. It has mm-hmm. to do with not being in control of the situation, right? Yes. I should be deathly afraid of driving my vehicle every day <laughs> because statistically, I have much greater chance of being hurt that way, yeah. right? But I can't even imagine being in a tiny, tiny aircraft with the wind and not being in control and. Like, yeah, I don't know if we'd yeah. have been friends at the end of that. No, no. Uh, luckily, my flight instructor, the guy that was in plane, he was, um, he's super patient, super awesome. And while it looks like he's got his hands folded in his lap, his hands are a millisecond from the controls. Sure. Yeah. And sure, that's how, sure. that's how flight instructors are. So anyway, weather, archaeology, this is the archaeology show. So let's, uh, let's get into that. I want to talk about the weather because, as we said, you know, snow flurries last week and, and probably in some higher elevations, uh, you know, freezing overnight mm-hmm. and then thawing out during the daytime. Mm-hmm. And that freeze-thaw cycle is seriously uh, detrimental. I wouldn't say detrimental to artifacts. I mean, anything that happens to them, you could say, is the natural course of events, right? Mm-hmm. So detrimental in the sense that we can lose sight of them for a while, if not forever, mm-hmm. because anybody that's walked out – in this desert environment and seeing all that cracking that happens mm-hmm. in the desert, like on playas and things like that, anywhere where you don't get a lot of water, uh, it does that because as things dry out, just like your skin, it pulls apart from sure. each other and cracks and makes those, uh, makes those holes. Well, artifacts fall through those cracks, right? And then, uh, and then you've got that freeze thaw cycle that's, that's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, basically just pulsating on the landscape over the course of potentially thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And, not only uh, not only changing the way sites look, but altering possibly even like the locations or as what we think of as the locations of sites because they're essentially moving through the landscape through this very, 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 very slow process. Mm-hmm. But as we're going to talk about in an article later, sometimes things just sit there for a long time and nobody sees it. Mm-hmm. So if you come along and say, oh, here's an archaeological site, it, it might not be in its primary location that you thought it was because of this. And the other things that can definitely move artifacts. Now, the free slot cycle, 
doesn't move them as much as you would think, and it's way slower. But it can damage artifacts, like, for example, uh, rocks or mm. rock art or things like that. When you get a tiny, tiny – water doesn't need much. All it needs is a tiny sliver of a crack, mm-hmm. something small to sit in, and then it freezes. Breaks off a little more because water expands. Sure. Yeah. And then that happens more and more and more and more. And before you know it, you go to a, a petroglyph site with panels up along the wall uh, making hand gestures. So imagine mm-hmm. with yourself mm-hmm. that you can see me. Um, so you're looking at this wall, and then you've got these huge panels and boulders just laying in front of it. That's because the freeze-thaw cycle on those boulders and that panels have been happening not just for the few thousand years the rock art's been there, but for the few million years that that wall has been exposed. Sure. So, and then plus any seismic activities just oh, kinda, yeah. you know add to that. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Yeah, you get a little bit crack and then you get a little shaking and the whole thing falls down. So, so along that kind of along that, uh, not necessarily freeze thaw, but with you know having snow, say Tahoe, right? We had our Native American tribes up mm-hmm. in Tahoe, and we know that because people have found sure. artifacts up there, but artifacts are going to wash down the Truckee as well. Yeah. Right. And they're going to end up all the way in Fernley or all the way in wherever the end of, of the river is. It's pyramid like, Oh, well, there you go. So <laughs> how, how does one determine where, I mean, do you just trace it back all the way, right. you know, until, Oh, well, we didn't find any, any out of this Valley anymore. This basin of, of Lake Tahoe. Yeah. I mean, is that just, they just keep marching backwards and then they say, well, this was the real, location in order they say oh no they traveled all the way down the river and you can tell that because right so that's a complex question and the biggest reason is the Truckee river is you know has the Truckee river watershed Mm -hmm. and a watershed is anything any area like if you look at maps of watersheds usually the edges of the watershed are on peaks of uh, mountains or high contour areas or something Mm -hmm. like that because the watershed for a river is any part of the landscape where water is draining into that river, mm-hmm. right? If the water drains into another river, it's part of that river's watershed. You know, So when they say this river drains 200,000 acres of land, that's what that means, right? Mm-hmm. It all comes down into that. So you can't even work that back. Like if you find an artifact that looks like it has no place being down in Reno, mm-hmm. you might say, well, it definitely it came from upstream because it's in the river, but how far upstream? And then not only how far upstream, but how far up the hillside mm-hmm. you know, did it come? And And... And, you know, what was its journey? What was its journey? So mm-hmm. tied and did with it that, come up over the hill Well, from California? Well, I the mean, other knows? side of the range. Yeah, was it traded for? Did it come from, you know, Washington State? I mean, right. where did it come from? So now there's ways you can tell depending on the artifacts uh, certain things. Like, for example, if it is a long distance and say it's one of those materials like obsidian where mm-hmm. we basically have the – chemical fingerprints of the volcanoes that produce the obsidian every piece of obsidian comes from a certain volcanic event hmm. because these the, um because well, i guess it would right yeah because, because geology where it comes from <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. so but volcanoes volcanoes <laughs> sure why not <laughs> volcanoes in, in italian this is not a volcanto it's a volcano it, it can is. do it yeah so <laughs> um <laughs> volcanoes because, you know, they have a similar chemical process to produce the explosions that they have mm-hmm. and the pyroclastic flows and all those other things, that's fine. But the chemical compositions of those things are very, very, very unique. Because they're on such a large scale, you can have a little bit more of this element, a little bit more of this, sure. and a little bit more of that, but it still produces the same effect, mm-hmm. right? Same thing with obsidian. There is a ton of variation within obsidian, not only just colors, but opacity um, with the little inclusions that you can find in it, you know, how pure was it? 
Uh, I mean, all the different kinds of things. In general, it's a black glass, mm-hmm. but it can't be brown, mm-hmm. you know, or have flecks of brown. Uh, it's generally brownish, blackish, maybe some other rainbowy type colors in there, but generally it stays in that family because that's the basic definition of obsidian. When it gets into some other opacity or colors, then it becomes some other kind of rock, right? Mm-hmm. So, but the point is, you can trace back obsidian if you know where the sources are, and people have spent decades, geologists, archaeologists, finding these obsidian sources where they're eroding out of the ground because when it when it solidified you know you've just got massive masses of obsidian sure wherever it froze yeah there's a place out near lassen national park in northern california called glass mountain Mm -hmm. and it's literally glass mountain i mean it's just obsidian all over the place i mean you can go up there and take some out if you want to prevent mining they've got regulations from i don't know if it's the park service or the forest service that runs that or even the blm i honestly don't know which one but you can get a permit and i think it's like 50 pounds a day or something you can take out of there yeah so if you're real dedicated you can go in there and whatever the weight is don't quote me on that but um, anyway, so you can trace it back like that. So then that's how we map trade and migration routes mm-hmm. with certain things like that. Now, back to water. That's the other thing I want to talk about with weather is one of the greatest movers and shakers for archaeology sites and and destroyers of archaeology sites is water and wind. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and wind takes into effect really in places like the Great Basin where you have very little vegetation. Mm-hmm. So wind is just whipping right across the ground surface. If you're in like a forest or something, you might not have that much wind activity on the ground. I was on a site in uh, near Battle Mountain one time, probably six, seven years ago, and I actually saw I actually saw oh no wait, I'm thinking of something else. This was down near El Centro, California. Too many things look all the same when you're mm-hmm. in the desert. Mm-hmm. El Centro, California, we were on a small site that had a ton of pottery on it, and I'm sitting there just recording in my iPad just some of the pottery that I'm seeing in this one area. And it was super windy. I mean, we had like face masks and all kinds of stuff. And we were like desert archaeologists, you know, like mm-hmm. working out there. It was ridiculous. A and bunch of people with pickaxes and... <laughs> well, we weren't digging. Turbans we're, and stuff like that. Yeah, basically though, right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I saw a big sherd. And here's your tip of the day. Sherds are pottery, S-H-E-R-D. Shards are glass, S-H-A-R-D. People don't know that. I've been alive 42 years. <laughs> <laughs> never, not only have I never even heard the word shirt, let alone give, be provided a definition. So exactly. Thank you. There's your, there's your PSA for the day. So anyway, so sh- I watched this shirt that was about the size of the palm of my hand and it was from some larger round vessel, right? Like most pottery is, uh, they didn't make a lot of plates back then for some right. reason. It was like shallow bowls or vessels uh, to hold liquids. And it was this big round one about the size of my hand. And I watched it flip over. Like, while I was standing there, it flipped over. Mm-hmm. Now, we'd been sitting there for, uh, I don't know if we ever dated it. I was on the initial part of it, so I don't know. But at the very least, it was hundreds, if not several thousand years old, right? So how many times, I don't know how many times it's flipped over. Right. I you mean, know? it could have flipped over a half an hour before you got there. It could have. And it could have been. Now, now here, here's the other thing, too. There was a lot of sherds right there in the same area. So that's how we know. Because they're not marching across the landscape together, right? I mean, it's just not happening. They're different sizes and weights. So generally, you can probably assume if you have a lot of them that they probably came from right there. Mm -hmm. But in cases where we do find an individual point or uh, pottery shirt or something like that just randomly on the landscape, either that was – I don't discount – people don't often talk about this, but I don't discount a child just picking it up, messing with it for a while, Mm -hmm. putting it in his pocket if they had pockets, putting it in his whatever he had. And then chucking it, you know, mm-hmm. breaking it, throwing it away. It was a toy for a little while or something like that. Sure. You know, they don't have the reverence for ancestral artifacts that the adults do yet. So could have picked that up, stowed it away, and then dropped it. Or it could have traveled via water or wind or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and also cattle. 
uh, when we were out on that project in Battle Mountain, that's why that was in my head, uh, there was a gentleman out there who was working with our crews. He was, uh, uh, I think he works full-time for this company now in, in town, but at the time he was basically just helping us out with some stuff. And he was doing a small experiment that he's published on since then where he basically took, uh, he created a bunch of flakes, so he didn't want to use uh, Native American mm-hmm. artifacts. So he did some flint napping, it's called, when you make mm-hmm. stone tools, mm-hmm. and he created a bunch of small flakes, and he painted one side of them mm-hmm. and numbered them all, right? And then he randomly distributed these near one of the um, kind of water sources that was near this site mm-hmm. because a lot of cattle came through there. And even though cattle weren't coming through there a 1,000 years ago, uh, cattle come through there now. Mm-hmm. And even if it wasn't cattle a 1,000 years ago or even 8,000 years ago, it was megafauna a long time ago. It was other fauna, you know, between now and then, you mm-hmm. know, herds of deer, antelope, things like that. So he wanted to see, well, if we come back next year and we come back the year after that, and then, you know, he took very accurate sub-centimeter points on every single one of these flakes and recorded their position, their angle, what side was up or down, mm-hmm. and then came back and did that, I think, at least one year in a row, if not two years in a row, and mapped the distribution and how they moved through time. So, uh, because the other thing is, you know, cattle especially, and anything with big hooves, when you're walking through that area and you've got that, those kind of feet, <laughs> then mm-hmm. they're covered in mud. That mud will pick up sure. artifacts, yeah, right? Yeah. It just stick to it, and then you take it and drop it off a half mile away. Yeah, like now a rock got... in your tread. Yeah, exactly, exactly. How many mm. people have done that with their cars? You know? So, let me ask you this: in a year's time, how much travel are these things? Did it say like a couple feet, a couple inches, uh, yards? Because right. how is this dude? I understand that you geoposition where you put them, mm-hmm. but if they move four feet to the left, mm-hmm. how do you even know where to begin? looking or or when to stop i guess when you find them all you stop but yeah and i'm not sure when he came back how far of an area he looked in but Mm -hmm. i do know a few things almost every artifact had moved in some way Mm -hmm. so either flipped over or moved or whatever and that could have been from water action could have been from wind because it was relatively wet when we were out there but it goes through serious dry periods too and then gets a ton of snow as well so you know you get snow you get all kinds of stuff and you get the snow melt uh, and then you get the animals through all those factors, some were never seen again mm-hmm. after the first time he laid them down, and some had moved. And I'm not sure if he had a, a strategy for saying, I'm going to look in this 20 feet by 20 foot square right. and see what's left. Because that's mm-hmm. usually the sampling strategy that people were do. They're not going to be concerned with stuff that went outside that because you really can't be. You have to look across the entire landscape. Mm-hmm. So you just got to stick with your, your, your site size or whatever sure. it is. You know, I found this and everything else is outlier outside. Yeah. Of, we have no idea. Exactly. It's just not part of the set anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, that's the only thing he was trying to determine. His basic thesis was, are these things moving mm-hmm. and how, mm-hmm. you know, now the other thing is you can't really tell, I would imagine in a lot of cases, whether or not something was moved because it was attached to the hoof of a cow or, you know, washed down. Now, you can probably look at the, the way the water flows right there mm-hmm. or would flow if water were to come rushing down the mountain and then tell, okay, so everything. Because sometimes you do see rocks and artifacts just like funneled into this area in a mm-hmm. drainage. It's clearly water that did that, right? Because they're all moved in the same right. alignment and in the same way. Um, he was also monitoring uh, breakage. You know, so if it's broken, right? Because I was going to say, if you have a pressure break, yeah, then that wasn't just from being, you know, slammed against another rock or whatever. That's no. from a downward force and typically something stepped on mm-hmm. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So. 
Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The weather discussion was not supposed to last 20 minutes, but it did. So <laughs> that's cool. Um, anyway, I, yeah, I just like people to think about weather and how these things are affected. And We look at archaeology sites and we think, man, nothing can damage that. It's been around forever. But... Uh, that's not true. It's just it's just in the current condition as we're seeing it, and we tend to take pictures and these mental snapshots when we go to places like we look at say Mesa Verde down in the Four Quarters region uh, near in New Mexico, and we look at these you know massive uh, rock structures that they built into the cliff faces and live there, and like man, I can't believe how long these have lasted. Yeah, well they looked a lot better a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like a thriving city, right? Right. I mean, yeah. I've heard that the pyramids were uh, like gleaming white. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were like they had this almost like plaster surface on some of them and others were different colors and i've heard like a, a gold plating on the capstone mm-hmm. of the pyramid i mean can you imagine seeing stuff like it was well, you almost you couldn't look at it you wouldn't be able to look directly at it imagine not in that desert sun right yeah. i mean i've been Which to the point iraq and saudi and all that and yeah if you had something pure white that you literally had to avert right. your eyes to yeah. kind of look at it, it would be very a uh, holy yeah thing yeah especially back then People were ingenious back then. Um, they were smarter than we give them credit for because we look at that stuff today and we say, oh, that's cool and all, but it's pretty boring. You know, it's bland, whatever, but it's just the color doesn't last. The no. color and the surface treatments don't last. Like something I didn't know, I've been to Pompeii twice. I was once in the Navy in like 1996 or whatever it was. And then once just uh, with my wife when we spent three weeks near Naples a couple years ago. And that was her first time in Pompeii. And something I didn't catch either time and i heard this on a podcast just today when i was actually driving here to do the radio show uh, i listened to this archaeology news podcast and they were mentioning this and uh pompey had a huge problem with um ruts so they had an ingenious way of paving all their streets with stone but when you pave your streets with stone stone that has to be quarried into blocks of sufficient size mm-hmm. blocks that you can actually carry from a quarry that's a long ways away mm-hmm. and then buried into the ground and then make this street. Well, when the, when the wagons that they had would make the, the really deep ruts in these well-used streets, it was impossible to 
fix that. Mm-hmm. Like it was really expensive and really hard. They have financial records from the area saying, you know, this is a huge problem fixing mm-hmm. our streets. So one ingenious thing that they did was they basically and they've they've proven that they had the um not a kiln, but what do you melt? Uh, smelting area mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. iron. They take like iron slags, so like the the discarded iron, because they had iron working back then. They would take the discarded iron, melt it, and then use put other stuff in it, like old pottery mm-hmm. sherds, mm-hmm. old pottery mm-hmm. sherds, <laughs> and and some other things that would last, you know, in that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. And they'd mix it all in there in this molten metal and pour it into the streets, and then it hardens almost immediately mm-hmm. because it's metal. And then you just fill it in your potholes. I wonder how toxic that was. Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> to the, the whole listen, that was that was the least of their worries because they had indoor plumbing as well. Yeah, they had like water and indoor plumbing. Yeah, all the pipes were lead. Yeah, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> lead oakum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's, why uh, am I so shaky? <laughs> well, <laughs> turns out lead poisoning. Yeah, hashtag lead poisoning. Yeah. yeah. So hey, here's a question though: At a certain temperature, could a shard become a shard? No. It's just because it's chemically just, or, or yeah, I, I just, I, I know what you're saying because it is basically sand, right? But you need the silica content because the silica is what turns glass, mm-hmm. the silica in sand. So it's a special, it's not like any sand you can make glass, mm-hmm. right? It's got to have a sufficiently high silica content to actually make glass. Mm-hmm. And, and while pottery does have sand in it, it's mostly clay. See kids, not just archeology, span <laughs> also science. Well, and, and I hope we get to one of the articles that, that, that talks about that because there's so much science involved in archaeology. People look at archaeologists and they say, oh, I'm just going to, you know, I, I can't handle going out there and digging for the rest of my life. Well, can you operate a scanning electron microscope? Do you mm-hmm. want to know what that's like? Do you want to do some other really fancy analyses that is, you know, you need like a physics degree to do, mm-hmm. not an archaeology degree? Plenty of things you can do and still study and um, analyze history. Sure. So, all right. Well, let's go down. I, I want to let's let's talk about that one right now because I don't want to miss it. Um, this ancient plant remains one. I've actually got it as the last article, but let's make it the first article. Uh, before we do that, let me give you the phone number one more time to call in because the person that can actually answer the phone just walked in the door. So uh, 775-515-4141 is the phone number. You can call that from anywhere. If you're somewhere else in the world and you happen to be listening to this, you can jump on Skype. And I think for at least two cents US a minute, uh, it's almost nothing. You can make a regular phone call. I don't know what it is if you're calling from somewhere else to here. Uh, I don't know if the rates are different, but you know, it's an American company, so probably not. It's probably similar. Anyway, 775-515-4141. And you can also tweet at Archeo-Webby, A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y, and then at ArcPodNet. All right, so let's and, – and I've, I got a message here from uh, Kristen from Twitter and she says, can you receive messages? And Kristen, if you're listening to this, I can, unless this is totally unrelated. So anyway, send me another message on Twitter. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about this article. Um, I read it actually in jewishpress.com, although it was published, it was published in the journal of uh, human evolution, which I do not have access to. And most people do not. So, uh, most journals are really academic subscription. Very expensive. They're very expensive. Yeah. So you get access to something like JSTOR, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. yeah, which is not cheap either, but gives you all those back issues and some current issues of sure. academic journals. And, and most people get these through their university affiliation. So there's something to check out. If you happen to be affiliated with a university, and by affiliated, I mean still have an email address because I had mine for like 10 years after I left college. Uh, 
you might have access to some of these academic articles. Well, my wife's yeah. going for her doctoral degree, so she has access to all that stuff. Yeah, as long as the university is at UNR. No, is it Truckee? It's an online school. Online school. She just has to check because yeah. the school has to have the subscription. Oh, they so. do. I was enrolled there too, oh, and well, I there you use go. it all the time. Perfect. Yep. So, all right. So this says uh, the title of this article is TAU and it's Tel Aviv University. So it's over in uh, Israel. Tel Aviv uh, TAU researchers identified millennia-old animal, plant remains, uh, oh, animal and plant remains on tiny cave flint tools. Okay. So let's set the stage here a little bit. So we've got what's called Kesem. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. Q E S E M. Kesem? Kesem? I don't know. Uh, cave near Rosh Ha'ainen in central Israel. Literally never going to say those words again. So, <laughs> central Israel cave. <laughs> and you've got prehistoric man. And because we don't have access to the primary material, we don't have a date on any of this stuff. Uh, however, you can probably assume in this area that. Uh, I would say it's probably tens of thousands of years old or mm-hmm. way older, mm-hmm. right? Because they do mention the word hominins at one point, and they, the person who wrote this took that from the article, more than likely. Uh, and you only typically say hominin kind of if you're not talking about humans, mm-hmm. if you're talking about human-related lineage, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, But I think this is still on the human line. It's just way old, right? That's what they're talking about. So I know that's very unscientific, but that's what we're going to talk about. But basically what these guys did, and this is what we were I was saying – about the ability to use advanced technology on some of this stuff is they took these small tools. So let's step back just a second. When you're creating stone tools, Mm -hmm. right? And in that time frame, they created a lot of really big stone tools. What's called the Achillean hand axe from uh, first identified in France. That's why it has a French name Mm -hmm. uh, is commonly known as like one of the biggest stone tools out there. I mean, it was really chunky, but the size of your hand and you could have used it with just your hands to like, you know, chop things. Mm-hmm. Or I guess you could have hafted that to something as well to a to another stick and created an actual axe or something out of it. The Ashley hand axe is kind of a common example of that. And those date back tens of thousands of years, right? So, but to make that big thing, you start with a bigger thing and you take all the little pieces off of it as you're making it, right? right. So th- this is called debitage, another French word. And anytime I type debitage, and this is how you know how to spell it, into uh, a word processing program, it spell corrects to spell checks to um, or autocorrects to debit age. <laughs> <laughs> so debitage, literally spelled debit age. Anyway, so you take this debitage, and, and a lot of times this is considered waste material, mm-hmm. right? You've got Often primary, um, secondary, and uh, tertiary flakes determined by a number of different methods. But basically, three different sizes or categories of flakes is how we will often put that. And then we'll have a fourth called shatter, which is just, you know, you've got this little flake and you've got the big piece. And then the tiny little bits that come off Mm -hmm. that have no definable shape, typically that's called shatter. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of archaeologists assume, and I would say rightly so in a lot of cases uh, on sites, is that the debitage, because there's so much of it, you might be making one point out of a cobble and end up with a ton of debitage, but only one usable piece out of it, right? Sure. So that's the thing they would use. Well, a lot of times the debitage is just discarded or left on the ground, or they do it in a certain area where they don't have to clean it up because there's a lot of it, Mm -hmm. and they just leave it there. Well, what the researchers in this article were looking at is let's study some of this stuff and see if we can't find something about it. So when you look at stone tools, there's two really good ways you can tell how they were used. Three, really. You can look at the shape. The shape is usually a good indication of what it was used mm-hmm. for, right? But aside from shape, especially when you're just dealing with flakes that essentially have no shape, aside from the fact that they're a flake, 
uh, you can look at two things. And one of those is usewear. So I always, on my safety vest, when I'm walking around, I have a little 10X magnifying lens that just hangs on there. And I'll use that to look at the edges of uh, flakes sometimes and tools. And you can look at the use wear and see, you know, is there a whole bunch, like on Obsidian, is there a whole bunch of little tiny flakes taken off the edge of this thing? Because uh, Obsidian is, you know, less than a millimeter thick mm-hmm. right at the edge. It's surgically thick. Um, and if there's stuff, a lot of little things taken off like that, well, then you can kind of assume this was used to scrape on things and they clean hides mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Because when you do that scraping action at a 90-degree angle from the tool to the to the thing you're scraping, you're going to pull off little bits of it, right? Yeah, you're going to shape it as you go. Exactly. You're, mm-hmm. you're Not only are you going to shape it, and, and some rock doesn't really change its shape that much, but microscopically it does. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at it microscopically and say, what does this look like? Are there little lines? You know, if it's used to cut bone, there's indication that is that and all this is done through experimental archaeology people take different tools and they do stuff to it Mm. and then look at it and say Mm. well what does that look like you know then they can go back in the field and say okay well the 800 times we did this it looked like this and you have that so it must have been used for this purpose right just like how forensics recreates (laughs) exactly bullet wounds and stuff yeah they shoot people Mm. and say what does that look like (laughs) how did that feel to you (laughs) how did that make you feel yeah Yeah. so anyway the, the other way is residue analysis so surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly, but especially in cave environments that maintain their moisture and not so much dry, you can you can look literally look at the microscopic residue that was left on some of these things. In some cases, it's you know molecules, mm. but they can see them with the right microscopes. And you you have these residues of either plant remains or um, animal uh, blood, you know, mm-hmm. spatter things like that, bone, um, all kinds of different things that can maintain that can keep that residue on these things. So basically, these guys, they used, uh, guys, these researchers, I don't know if they were men or women, used uh, Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy and Energy Dispersive X-Ray Spectroscopy, um, SCM-EDX, that one's called, and that, mm-hmm. one sounds, mm-hmm. that one sounds dirty. But uh, so they used these, mainly these, and then they did this in conjunction with the coolest institute i've ever heard of in my life the institute for nanoscale architecture mm-hmm. in rome like mm-hmm. i just want to work there like mm-hmm. just a, like as a janitor but you're, <laughs> but you're like way too big know, right you're su- <laughs> like how are you supposed to get inside that building because i'll be like the godzilla that comes through <laughs> it's, it all. A, it's like it's nano-sized building ant-man or something you shrink down it's not the institute in nanoscale architecture <laughs> Four nanoscale. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, yes, Zoolander joke. I know. I do imagine when I first read that, I imagined like miniature cities mm. right on the head of a pin. Is yeah, that you had to get in a submarine, <laughs> shrink, way, shrink down. way down. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Anyway, all I'm doing is pointing out here that they they took what we thought, what scientists and researchers in the past in this particular area thought was waste, and realized that the prehistoric people there were actually using some of these things, which. Mm. To be honest, comes as actually no surprise to me because you're, man, you're living in such a tough area, and if and if you bust off a flake while you're making something else, and you're like, man, that looks like I could use it for this mm-hmm. because you live your life out there, you know, you know the ten things you do every single day of your entire life because there literally is no variation, nobody mm-hmm. has any hobbies, right? So you're like, well, this would be good for that, and you're an expert in everything mm-hmm. that keeps you alive, and then so you maybe set that aside. And then that's any tool you don't have to do a lot of work to. I don't think they sat around and flitting out because they enjoyed it. No. They did it to survive. Yeah, again, like you said, they don't, you don't have hobbies. You do what you do to get food, and then you get warm thing, you basic needs, and then you 
yeah. create and then you repeat. Right. So, right. Yeah. And plus, again, I'm not a scientist. So what I'm about to say probably has no meaning, but we always, we've always been <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and every audience, <laughs> but we've always been taught that at least native Americans or, or early peoples wasted nothing. Yeah. Every single, like you ate every part you could eat, you used every part you could use to build something or wear it or whatever. And, so, then, they, and then they should a single tear right, when you right. don't. Yeah. Right. So it, yeah, I don't think there was such thing as waste unless it was actually destroyed and unusable mm -hmm. for any purpose. Yeah. So yeah, when they're like, oh, they, at first we thought they just threw it. No, they didn't throw away anything unless they just had no use for yeah, it. Yeah, or they yeah. just couldn't carry it or right. it got washed away. So. Yeah, and I, that's a good point. And I think that's uh, that's one thing that stood out to both of us in this article is the phrase. And I'd be willing to bet this came from the reporter who wrote the article, yeah. not from the actual article, right? The the journal article. Because um, the person says, I don't know if they're man or woman, so I'll just say the person. Uh, let's see. Uh, the research shows that the tiny stone tools, which were previously considered waste material and were ignored by many researchers, they weren't ignored. They were studied as waste material. Right. Um, but uh, constitute an excellent example of the complexity of the toolbox of prehistoric man, which is true, um, and his dedication to the principle of recycling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, come on. <laughs> It just doesn't make any sense. That's putting a, that's again a, a common yeah. mistake that people make is they put a modern bias yeah. on prehistoric interpretation. So again, there's no need to recycle if you're never throwing anything away. You're just right. using it until it's gone. Yeah. Right. It's reached the end of his lifespan. Um, but to like, yeah, like these prehistoric people are like, you know, in the year 2019, <laughs> things are going to get bad. So like we didn't really need to start this recycling thing now. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, they actually did do recycling back then. They have ever since there's been stone tools, there's been a recycling. But in the real sense of the word recycling, I don't consider using your waste recycling, to be honest. I, I consider you know, now we consider that this way in this day and age, like we'll take our waste, our paper and put it in the special blue bin. Mm -hmm. And then that gets hauled away and presumably repurposed into something else. But I feel like more likely dumped in a landfill. But um Anyway, so in, in in that sense, we do take our waste and we try to recycle it. Mm -hmm. But these guys, as you mentioned, they weren't necessarily taking their waste and recycling it. They were creating the the things, and they probably didn't even see it as waste. Right. But they're creating it's it. It's not waste. No. It's never waste until it's unusable. It's like, oh, sh I, I made another tool. Right. <laughs> There's no such thing as scrap. You just yeah. have smaller versions of what you thought. Right. Or you can't use it, so I guess you do have scrap. But to your point... Yeah, there's no such thing as waste. You have something that works, yeah. and then it's destroyed. Right. So there you go. And in, in the vein of uh, recycling, the way that I often think of it in prehistoric terms is you'll often see uh, a projectile point that's maybe – and we say projectile point. Again, I'm going to hammer on this point every time I mention it because we don't often know that it was an arrowhead. People always just call them arrowheads, but there were spears, darts, crossbow bolts, I mean all kinds of things mm -hmm. that these things could have been used on. So we say projectile point knowing that the shape indicated that it probably flew through the air at one point mm -hmm. attached to something. So anyway, projectile point. But you'll see one that that – you can kind of tell the base of it, what that looks like, because often we um, we identify these based on the base because the certain shape of the little ears and tangs, and there's mm -hmm. terminology for all these things that I won't get into. But the shape of that changes through time. That's the technological change through time because based on what it was being hafted to and how that was evolving, 
and 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 the size of the point itself and what it's made of what it's made of i mean all kinds of factors determine right. what that shape is going to be so when you see a shape but the rest of the point doesn't look right like let's say it's really stubby with mm-hmm. kind of a, a knob on it or something like that that's probably a longer pointed projectile point that broke off at some point, maybe during manufacturing, maybe during use. Mm. Maybe they picked it up because it was already used and fired into a rock or something mm. or shattered when it hit the rib of an animal or something like that. Uh, and then that was left there. Now, somebody else picked it up and said, well, there's enough. I can do something with this. And a lot, a lot of times they would make either a smaller point out of that right. or a drill. Well, drills were really common. So you'd take this, you'd have this really fat base compared to the rest of it, and then it'd come to a really short, really stubby tip. And then you put that onto a stick, and you can make a drill, mm-hmm. and you can drill holes through shell, through bone, through whatever, right. you know, with this little thing. And, uh, and you can make a specific drill, and you can usually tell when something was made to be a drill. But I, I feel like there was enough discarded and broken projectile points just from the manufacturing process mm-hmm. and from a usage standpoint. So if they shoot it into an animal, more than likely it's going to break off inside that animal. And then mm-hmm. when they bring it back or they process it on site, I mean, I would have grabbed it out of there, mm-hmm. you know, if I seen it sitting in the muscular structure somewhere. <laughs> sure, yeah, you can't waste it. That's no, a couple pick more it up. hours of work if you don't get it back, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, I don't know anything, but I imagine, so you're like, oh, I have a hand axe. And yeah. then you hit something and it breaks a piece off. And you're like, oh, now I have a slightly smaller hand axe and an arrow. <laughs> or, excuse <laughs> right. me, a projectile point. <laughs> exactly. Right? And then the projectile point goes against a bone or a rock. And you're like, oh, now I have a fish hook. Yes, Right, you don't really lose a tool; you just gain a different kind of tool. Hopefully, that's an excellent way to look at it. So, you know, and then once you use your fish hook, then maybe yeah, it's waste because it's yeah. lost in the river or right. whatever. But yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there is such thing as oh, I just don't need that, you know, whatever. Throw it <laughs> over there, nah. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. Um, and, and it's it's a, uh, I wish sometimes this reporting were actually run by the. The, art, the people who wrote the article, mm-hmm. you know, the journal article. Uh, but there's no time for that. I know they probably just, the person wrote this, you know, after dinner one night and then submitted it to their editor in the morning. I mean, I appreciate getting the information out there, but, you know, try to get it right. To their credit, they got real lazy at the end of it, and it's mostly just quoted paragraphs from the article, mm-hmm. which I'd rather have, you know, sure. if we don't have access to the article. <laughs> Source material. Right, right. So um, they do kind of, see, they use the, the own authors of the journal article to make up for the recycled comment, which was Mm -hmm. clearly from the reporter, because the very last paragraph here is a quote, and it says, prehistoric man who lived in Kesem Cave wasted nothing. Every animal they hunted and any plant they collected was fully utilized to maximize human survival, and from each tool that became worn out or discarded, other tools were produced, as we've just said. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, he was a natural recycler as an integral part of his life, and recycling in the concept of that looks good. Let's use it for something mm-hmm. else, right? Um, we certainly have much to learn from him. And there goes the... It makes me want to say repurposing. Yeah. You know, yeah. as opposed to recycling, which, again, I'm thinking of a modern where you take something and you melt it down to its base and reform it into something else. But really, they're taking one thing, it changes shape, they change the purpose. Mm-hmm. So you've repurposed the item. Yeah, and one, can, one way can lead into the other. Like, you can recycle them something for another purpose. So mm-hmm. you're recycling and repurposing. Kind of in the same sure. in the same thing. Now, well, we could talk about this all day. Uh, let's not do that. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. 
Let's move on to an article from Nevada. Before I do that, I'll drop the phone number one last time for this uh, episode as soon as I can find it because you think I'd have it memorized by now. Uh, 775-515-4141. That's 775-515-4141. And again, you can tweet your questions to at ArcheoWebby or at ArcPodNet. All right. So... This article we're going to talk about now is one I just saw, and it was reported in the Las Vegas Sun. And again, any articles that we mention, uh, just keep an eye on the Archaeology Podcast Network. It's archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology, because we do release these episodes as episodes of the Archaeology Podcast Network. This will, in fact, be episode 69, and I did not write down the date, but it's sometime in July that this will go out. So, uh, so you'll be able to hear this again. And I'm saying that because any article that we talk about is listed in those show notes. So as long as it's still alive on the Internet, it will be there, and most of these should be. So anyway, from Las Vegas Sun on actually Monday, May 27th, so last week, week and a half ago, or so, uh, they're talking about a 137-year-old Winchester rifle found in Nevada um, has a new home. So the article is basically about this Winchester rifle and the the museum or exhibit display, I guess, that they set up for it at Great Basin National Park uh, to basically highlight the rifle. And they found a bullet in the chamber, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's presumably some other things that are right there. And um, they're showing that. But the the amazing thing to me is. That the rifle, it was found nearly five years ago, and it's taken them this long, I guess, to probably more than likely pull together the funds and the permissions and all that stuff to get this stuff rolling. Mm. Um, and then they did historical research to because the model number was still visible to see if someone owned it. Presumably if someone owned it or if they have the records of who – someone did own it, but if they could find the records of who actually owned it, then they might try to contact descendants right. you know, and say, hey, we found your great, 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 great grandmother's or grandfather's rifle. So That email um, will get deleted so quickly. <laughs> right. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a lawyer with such-and-such, and I'm in Nigeria, and we found this rifle of yours. <laughs> belonged to your great, 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 great uncle. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this was leaning up against a tree. Mm-hmm. I, I almost cannot believe that, right? And luckily – I mean, I can't imagine the the luck that is involved in this statement, but a park archaeologist found it. Yeah. Now, where was she at that is off the beaten path? I mean, Great Basin National Park is a huge place. I've only been through there. I've never spent any time there, but um, it's a huge place. And I can understand that there's, um, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of acres, if not millions, that Great Basin National Park, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. contains. So there's probably lots of areas where people just don't make it. You know, people are encouraged to stay on trails to, to minimize impact on the mm-hmm. environment. But park employees will go off in other places just to, you know, do whatever they got to do. And the park archaeologist, she was presumably out there either doing survey because they do survey their own areas or, I don't know, was on the way to somewhere else. But I find it so hard to believe that this was still leaning up against a tree with all the wind and snow and rain and everything Animals. that we get. Animals. I mean, how did an animal not come along and just rub up against it? Yeah, a bear or something? Yeah. I mean, my thought is, unless that tree, like, grew around it, mm. but the trees grow so slow in Great Basin National Park, like the, the oldest tree, what is it, in this continent uh, is in Great Basin National Park? It's one of those old, um, what, it's a special kind of juniper. I'm, t- I'm totally escaping the name right now. Um, but they don't grow very big, mm-hmm. and they don't grow very fast. Mm-hmm. So if it was leaning up against something like that, I can understand the tree trunk not growing around it. But if you lean that thing up against an aspen, the aspen would have sucked it into its trunk within like 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So, And then who knows what that would have done to it. But anyway, the fact that it was still leaning up against a tree when she found it, I'd like to see more about this. I, I'm sure she took a picture because she's an archaeologist. Before she even touched it, she more than likely snapped a photo. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, 
was it was it partially grown into the tree was it you know something i i have to believe that it probably had fallen over and i'm to give just give the whole situation the benefit of the doubt somebody came along and knew that they probably shouldn't touch it and just lean it back up against the tree it back up yeah, yeah. it's probably but, unlikely but yeah i was gonna say that. <laughs> i mean again projection being what it is and me just maybe not being a great person i the first thing i thought when i read that article was wait how did this make it to the news yeah. Because if I found out, well, how long? 153? 137 years. 137, right? And then later in the article, it says that that thing's value would be upwards of $15,000 right now. Yeah. Or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. There would have been never, there would have never been a news story because you would have never known I found it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I would have already auctioned it off. Um, so, yeah, I was like, how did they owe archaeologists? Got it. Yeah. That's the only way. I can't imagine any other human. Right. Just being like, oh, you know, I just really got to do the right thing with this. I'm all here by myself in the woods with no one to see me at all. I better better go take this to a museum. Yeah. No. So along those lines, uh, in the exhibit that they have, it highlights the role of the – they call it the Model 1873 because mm-hmm. I don't know if Winchester is making a different model every year or probably reset their model numbers or something, whatever they did. But it was it was from – uh, It says the serial number was visible, allowing experts at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. Uh, I think they have a huge database of Winchester Mm -hmm. serial numbers there to determine it was made in, oh, actually 1882, but it was the model 1873. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess they didn't have to change rifles too much, did they? Point and shoot. I don't think, yeah, technology didn't (laughs) advance that quickly back then, right? Yeah, as soon as they rifled the barrel, which gave it its name, that was pretty much it. When I think the article said that that was the most, one of the most common or or Mm -hmm. most used uh, rifles of that time. Yeah. So. Yeah, there would have been lots of them. Yeah. Makes you wonder what happened to the person. Like, did they set it down and go, you know, you know, use the bathroom off a cliff or something like that and just like fell to their death? Yeah. Or like. Mauled by a bear? Yeah. Took a nap and a bear got him or, you know, some other. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. You don't just typically leave your source of safety and hunting and every you don't just yeah. leave that and there was a round in the chamber yeah yeah so he's walking around with a round in the chamber maybe probably hunting maybe there was two rounds in the chamber maybe there were <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> now there's one right so there's a so there's a buried animal or human skeleton and buried by nature not right. by people you know very nearby mm-hmm. you know that it had signs of heavy blood loss so uh, and lead poisoning so anyway, uh, the point of all this is, uh, so they have the Model 1873 that was built in 1882, but they also have, as the rifle and the and the bullet that they have displayed next to it, they also have uh, information on what the West was like in that time, how mm. it was used, things like that. So all that took time to compile and put this exhibit together, which is mm-hmm. another reason why it probably took five years. Um, but I guess the whole point of this is, you know, if you had found it, Brian... And you had auctioned it off. You're right. Nobody would know about it, you know. And now you and I are sitting here talking about this. I didn't know that there was a Model 1873 Winchester rifle that lasted at least until you know nine years later mm-hmm. when, when this one was purchased, but presumably a lot longer. And uh, while we probably have a lot of examples of this particular thing because it was so common, that we probably got even better examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, just finding it in that location, while we knew people were there, people were walking through there doing different things, that's just the proof that you need rather than speculation that somebody was actually right there and they they were either hunting or they were doing something, you know, defending themselves. Because I don't know if it was common in the 1880s to walk around with one in the chamber. You know, it's not now, typically. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
people do, but <laughs> it's not, I wouldn't say it's that common from a safety standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how safe they would be back then, but we wouldn't have known any of these things had someone else found it and not turned it in or given the right information about it. Yeah. And now we have an exhibit in a museum and this is the true, um, this is, this is where things like that should go. Mm-hmm. You know, people always say, people who are looters always say, uh, you know, archaeologists just steal artifacts and they say that because archaeologists will take stuff and then it disappears for a really long time Mm -hmm. because it does it has to be analyzed the funding has to be secured to do something with these things it has to be put in a museum somewhere and you may not see it for a really long time but eventually you will see it or you'll read about it Mm -hmm. and that's the point of archaeology the point is not to dig it's to it's to find historical things and tell part of that story and put it out there Mm -hmm. so yeah what else have you found that we don't know about well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but dodging the question, <laughs> I always, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, onto soccer. No, um, but I do have a question. I always ask. So you say, hey, you know, we found a rifle from 150 years ago and now, you know, 150 years later, whatever we're talking about it. Yeah. Okay. And that was just such a common tool that a person just had with them back then. Right. Yeah. So Despite the article that just came out last week saying that humanity will probably only last another 50 years or something like that, <laughs> yeah, 30 so years, that. I think it was 30. Yeah. What, again, what do you think, again, pretend 200 years from now we're still a viable planet and people are, you know, or they've returned and they're looking, what are they going to find laying around and what are they going to be talking about? Mm-hmm. Know, yeah. Like, it just seems like, I don't know, none of the stuff that we have would be... You've, even the nice new cars that we have, mm-hmm. I don't see car shows 50 years from now going, oh, look at this Nissan Pathfinder. Yeah. That was an amazing car. Yeah. I mean, it's a great truck. I like it. But it's just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like anything's made anymore that's super fancy that later on people are going to be like, ooh, look at this. This was Right. But a lot of times things aren't super fancy in the moment either. Yeah, exactly. Know? Like I said, that was just a tool that yeah. someone had. So, yeah, when they come back, they're going to find our just our cell phones. and Yeah. But see, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff is important to have at a museum to learn from. Like when we, I went to the uh, uh, national, is it just the National History Museum? Whatever the big one is on the on the mall down in Washington D.C. My wife and I went there a few years ago for the first time, and they had the museum of what is it called? The Museum of like Modern Innovation or something mm. like that. I mean, there were you know cell phones, Apple mm. computers. When something comes out new, it doesn't have to be old to be in that museum. If, mm. But if it's unique and iconic for the culture and, and defining for the culture, mm. like there's a relatively new iPhone in that museum, like already in the exhibit, right? And the iPhone is uh, the iPhone 10 that came out uh, a year and a half ago was the 10 year anniversary of the iPhone. So it's only been around 10 years, mm. but it's in that museum because half the planet owns one, sure, right? So I think while the Nissan Pathfinder. Uh, is not <laughs> is not like a you know something we're going to remember for mm-hmm. all time. Uh, we'd have to fit, we would have to it would be interesting to look at all the various cars and things like that. And what would you use to represent this era or or from a vehicle shift, standpoint? Yeah, right? or when it because you have distinctly like the Model T in in that time period. Sure, and then you kind of have this period in between where all cars kind of become standardized and they all kind of look the same yeah, after yeah. after the fifties and sixties and seventies. In the eighties, it seemed like everything just became a box or yeah. whatever. And then, so you have that bland, and then you have Tesla. Yeah. So yeah. I guess you could say because that was a totally unique body style, mm-hmm. and then the interior is totally different. Plus, being electric. Um, so I guess that would be. I mean, I tell you, you would probably have the first Model S. 
Uh, you know what it's going to be? Uh, I think I can't believe I didn't think of this earlier. My wife and I watched the uh, first three seasons of the what used to be Top Gear in the UK, mm-hmm. and they turned it into Grand Tour on Amazon. And if you haven't seen it, even if you're not into cars, the three guys that are hosting that are just it's an entertaining show. Mm. But they talk about hypercars and supercars a lot. And it used to be supercar was the term, but now hypercar is the term because mm. they needed something beyond that. And uh, honestly, I think those are going to be in the museum mm-hmm. if there's any left, because you can also go on YouTube and see hypercar fails where somebody buys a million and a half dollar car and then burns it up yeah, <laughs> or crashes kind of like it. F1 McLaren or something. Yeah, totally, totally. So, uh, but I think it's going to be, I honestly think it's going to be those because those are the the Corvettes and the, the winged, you know, Chevy, mm-hmm. you know, whatevers of the 50s. You know, those were... While those weren't supercars or hypercars, and that's just kind of what cars were looking like, mm. that's what we think of when we think cars of the 50s, right? Yeah. Well, when we think cars of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, because 80s is really when they started getting into the supercar territory with like the really super high-end Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things okay, like that. Yeah. And then Testeroses. And, and exactly. And then pushing those limits in the 90s and 2000s and now – and, and most of the ones coming out now, which should aid in their preservation, are um, almost entirely carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. Entirely carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything inside there and electric. So some of them are still hybrid, but a lot of the newer ones are coming out just full 100% electric. And that kind of thing, if it's left in somebody's garage after they buy it, I mean, it's not going to go away anytime soon. That carbon fiber is going to look as new as the day you got it in 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, it's not going to rust. It's not going right. to degrade like plastic does. Yeah, unless it catches on fire, you should be okay. Right, fire's pretty bad for carbon fiber. Yeah, but aside from that, breathing. The fumes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so aside from that, um, I, I think uh, it's it's really interesting to think what's going to be out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really honestly don't know. So, well, let's talk about one more article before we end here because I don't want this thing on my plate anymore because it's totally ridiculous. But we read this article. Uh, from a, it's, it's from a, I don't know, some publication, but it's, uh, design, bo- designboom.com basically. And they're calling it, uh, Italy's house of the archeologist expresses history through materiality. And I'll tell you what, we, as an archeologist, we always express history through materiality. So that's not too uncommon, but basically this architect, uh, based in Milan, Italy, and I, they're not really going into why he did this, but actually donated this house um, to a client. And it's a residence that they titled the House of the Archaeologist. And the reason for that, according to this very short article, is that it was built with a sustainable approach to philosophy um, and using raw materials from renewable resources. And they also used raw materials from decommissioned quarries and landfills. Now, they didn't say they went to the you know travertine quarries of, you know, Mm-hmm. Like Rome or anything like that, and 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 just got more rock. So if the quarry was decommissioned, and they went and quarried more material, that's not necessarily archaeology, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you torn down the Colosseum and built this house, that would be using mm-hmm, <laughs> repurposed mm-hmm, materials mm-hmm. back to recycling as we come full circle, right? You know, so I I just don't uh, I just really don't understand um, why this is called the House of the Archaeologist. To be honest. Uh, I don't get it. What was your first thought when you saw this and I sent this article to you? I mean, it's kind of a cool house. I figured it was uh, – It was a per- <laughs> the guy naming it that just seems like permanent clickbait. Yeah, it really does. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you went to a landfill right, or a quarry. There's no – I mean, if there was archaeological significance to that quarry, they yeah. should have already figured that out before it became a quarry. 
Yeah. Right? Or once they found out while they were coring and they go, oh, we need to stop. So, right. yeah, it's just a cool title so that you can make an article about it later. It's neat that he built a house out of renewable mm-hmm. material, but a lot of people do that. I mean, yeah. So I mean, he had to give it a title and they put archaeologist on it because, again, that's a cool word to hear. Right. And he did say renewable. Uh, I don't know how many of the materials inside are renewable, but all, everything you can see on the outside mm. is stone. And while stone <laughs> is renewable in a sense, <laughs> yeah. it takes a couple billion years. <laughs> <laughs> like magnitudes of force and heat. And, right. Yeah. Like, like you can make more granite <laughs> and marble, but yeah, it's going to take a little while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Classic, uh, huge right. impact with another <laughs> celestial body. Yeah. Yeah, well, this house will survive because mm. it's just part of the landscape, mm. basically. It'll just return to yeah. its former self. I know it was totally marketing um, hyperbole too. He's like, we wanted to make, we wanted to donate to our client a house that had in its soul and its passions for history and archaeology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, it doesn't even look historical. It looks ultra modern. Yeah. Um, it looks like inside, it looks like just a regular house, yeah. you know, it's all white and I make that same walls. statement when I give my daughter her mac and cheese, <laughs> like I'm just really trying to preserve the culture of this mac and cheese. That's right. That's right. I hope she realizes what you're doing for her. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brian. We're going to wrap it up right now. All right. Thank you much for letting me be on. Yeah. Uh, for our local listeners, tell us about your comedy show coming up here shortly. One more time. June 20th out at Red Hawk Golf Course. We are going to have some comedians coming in. We have Johnny Taylor Jr. coming out. Uh, Johnny Taylor's actually in Colorado right now with Brian Posehn mm-hmm. uh, opening for him. But then we'll have him as a headliner. Show will start at 8 p.m. Doors open at 7 Tickets cost $20 for general admission and 40 for VIP. All right. Sounds good. And I think you're mowing everyone's lawn or something that goes the VIP ticket? Uh, massages. Massages. Gotcha. Massages. All right. Sounds yeah. good. It is Nevada. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, on that note, <laughs> we will see everybody next week. Uh, don't forget to check out the Archaeology Podcast Network where you can find the show notes for all these shows, usually about a month or so in advance of the show being on the radio. Uh, so check that out for show notes. If you want to listen to any of the past episodes of this, again, they're all over at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things and keep listening to the archaeology podcast network have an awesome day this show is produced and recorded by the archaeology podcast network chris webster and tristan boyle in reno nevada at the reno collective this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.